Hi, it's John Gibson here with another episode of Gibbo's Corner when uh, we'll be talking about the great stories of Newcastle United behind the headlines we're calling this one and I think these are a few different stories we've tried to get a bit more offbeat more fun, light-hearted fascinating stories throughout the time hope you enjoy it as much as I did when that happened Hello and welcome to the Everything Is Black and White podcast. It's another episode of Gibbo's Corner. This time not recorded from the corner of the lane head, but from the corner of my beautiful garden, if I do say so myself, John. <laughs> it certainly is. Very, very colourful. That's what I like. I couldn't tell you what any of the plants are called, but it's the colour I like. Absolutely. We've got a belter show for you today. and I'm really excited because what usually happens is that John will give me the notes in advance and I'll recognise a few of the names. I can probably sense some of the stories that are coming but I'm really happy to say that some of these stories I'm not even sure who the people are and that's maybe because I'm a, a young whippersnapper as John would say so I'm really excited to get into some really fresh stories for Gibbers Corner. Yeah uh, first story uh, Keith Birkinshaw who um, interesting background just very very quickly he was well known at Newcastle as one as a coach um, but his background was that he played for three years as a player. He played for three years at Liverpool, but only in the reserves for three years. When the reserve team manager was Bob Paisley, the uh, the the guy from County Durham, who then went on to win all the European Cups with with Liverpool, he played three years there. But he then signed for Joe Harvey and played for Joe Harvey at Workington, who in those days were in the Football League, and uh, he made over three hundred appearances for Workington. As a player, and that was the background to how he came to Newcastle because his manager uh, had been Joe Harvey. He joined Newcastle as assistant coach in 1968. That was with the reserves when Newcastle, that was the season 68 69, we won the European First Cup, of course. But Dave Smith was the first team coach, and he became Newcastle first team coach in 1971 and stayed with us till 75. and he got this the sack on the back of Joe Harvey being kicked upstairs because when they've got Joe out, the coaches go as well and Berkey went. Ironic because Berkey then become an absolutely outstanding football manager with Tottenham Hotspur in the days when Tottenham actually won things. And Berkey, um, you know, if only he'd stayed at Newcastle and become manager of Newcastle... Uh, instead of going to Gordon Lee and everything we did after that. Um, But the interesting thing was, these days we readily accept that um, the Premier League clubs sign world stars from all over the globe and they come and play in the Premier League. But in his day, he was the groundbreaker. That didn't happen uh, at all um, until Berkey bashed the door open. Um... And it was interesting because uh, he'd just become manager of um, Spurs and he was sitting in his office at White Hart Lane, he was telling me, just a few days after the 1978 World Cup final had taken place. Uh, He had less than two months to prepare for the new season. It was Spurs' first season back in the old First Division, back in the big time. And he'd taken over from Bill Nicholson, who was the legendary Spurs manager from way back when they did the double, etc., etc. And Bill was still 
involved with the club, and he'd popped in this day to see Berkey, was chatting away, the phone rang, and Bill Nick picked it up, and um, a voice on the other, side, the other side, end of the phone said, hello, Bill, it's Harry Haslam here. Now, Harry Haslam at that time was manager of Sheffield United, but he is the bloke that discovered and tutored and nourished Supermac. When Supermac was a non-league player at Tonbridge, and when he first came uh, to the league at Fulham, it was Harry Haslam that did the deal. He was well known in football as a wheeler dealer. And um, he, w- he was phoning and he said to Billy Nick, will you have a word with Berkey and ask him if he's interested in signing Osvaldo Ordealers? Now, Ordealers had just starred in this Argentinian side that had just won the World Cup and was one of their superstars. But he was playing in Argentina. He wasn't in Europe. So the idea of, of buying a player from Argentina was sort of unheard of at the time. And and Berkey told me, he said, I said, hey, what you he thought it was a, a Mickey taker because, you know, nonsense, the other side of the world. But Harry Haslam had links to South America through one of his coaching staff called Oscar Orquez, who was an Argentinian. And he had been told that these Argentinian guys were wanting to get into Europe to make the big books because they couldn't make big books playing in, in Argentina. Uh, so before he knew where he was, uh, Berkey said, I was on a, a plane to Buenos Aires, and he arrived there, he, you remember the date so well, Saturday, July the 8th, 1978, and was met at the airport by a fella called Antonio Ratten. Now, for those people with long memories, that'll Im- immediately ding-a-ling alarm bells, because he was the guy that skippered Argentina in 1966, against England at Wembley in the quarters before England went on to win the World Cup. And it was the famous occasion when Sir Alf Ramsey called the Argentinians animals and rushed on the field to stop the England players from shaking hands with the Argentinian players at the end of the game because he said they were animals. Ratten was sent off as early as the 36th minute of that game against England and he refused to leave. Uh, the referee ordered him off and he wouldn't go off the pitch. And the game was held up for eight minutes because he wouldn't go off the pitch so the game could be restarted. And he had to be escorted off, off by the British Bobbies. Um, so he, in this country, he was looked upon as some sort of, you know, anti-hero. Uh, but Berkey said he was absolutely magnificent for him. He was very courteous. He acted as interpreter. He introduced him to everybody there was to introduce him um, for, for four or five days. And Berkey said he met with Ozzy within hours of arriving in Buenos Aires um, in a hotel there. Uh, and he asked Ozzy, would you like to come and play for me in London? And um, Ozzy immediately said yes. It was easy to do a deal. There wasn't agents in those days. There was, and Ozzy just wanted to come. He said, the only thing I'll have to do is I want to bring my wife, Sylvia, he said, to, to meet you, to, um, you know, because we're going to go to the other side of the world. Um, so he did that the next day, and within five minutes of the meeting, can you imagine a, a world-shattering deal being able to be done that that quickly? And the next day, he brought his wife, 
they had a chat. He said, they both said, yes, I'll come. And as he said nonchalantly, just before he got up to leave and shake hands, he said, uh, would you like to sign Ricky Villa as well? And he, he said, Ricky Villa? He says, that's my mate. He, he was in the Argentinian World Cup's winning squad with him. He said, because uh, he would like to come. He said, uh, oh, so he phoned... Berkey phoned the cha his chairman, Sidney Whale, and said, who was flabbergasted that he was out. I don't. I think he was cynical that he would get Aussie in the first place. But yes, you can go out there. And he's, he said, by the way, I've got Aussie, but can we sign another World Cup winner while I'm here? And he, you know, he said, is this a job, lot? Or what's what's going on? But yeah, you can if you'll come. And um, he got. Ricky Villa at the same time. I mean, our dealers who had more than 40 caps for Argentina at the time only cost 325,000 quid. Uh, Ricky Villa, with much less experience, cost a little bit more than that from Racing Club. And those, that deal, those two deals, was sensational. In this country, um, it was page one leads. It transcended sport. Um, and, of course, there was a massive backlash later on when we went to the Falklands War of course mm -hmm. and Aussie actually had to leave and go and play in Paris because of the backlash of, against Argentinians. I'm just wondering there is sensational you know these foreign players coming over to the English game and around about that time what were Newcastle doing? I mean was, I'm just trying to think, think back obviously they had George Robledo on the side but you know he was already here in, the, in, yeah, in yeah. England. So I mean we, we, we were Groundbreaking in more one way. We had George Robledo, who was unheard of, a Chilean international playing for Newcastle in the beginning of the 50s. But of course, he, he was brought up as a, a kid in Barnsley because his mum was from Barnsley, yeah. uh, although he was born in Chile. And Ted Robledo, his brother, who played in the 52 Cup final with us. We then, um, quite groundbreaking in 1969 our first cup team included Benny Amantoft who was Danish of course and that was unheard of but again there was reasons for it happening and he, he played in Scotland for Greenock Morton for a few years and we signed him from a Scottish club so he was a Danish guy but he'd signed for a Scottish club so he'd come in the back door that way the same as Rob Lido come in the back door but I mean um, you know we have, we've signed since we've signed all the, oh. we, we haven't signed anybody that was as good as a foreign player as good as Ozzy Ordealers was mine uh, I mean he was quite sensational um, uh, and a wonderful little man it's ironic that uh, he was signed by an ex Newcastle first team coach and ended up managing Newcastle mm. and coming up up here and um, I mean that was the other thing I, I talked to Berkey about when you realise the career he had at Spurs when he was first team manager and he was looked upon then as one of the great managers in this country, especially innovative having brought the two Argentinian World Cup winners. Um, and he never managed Newcastle. But as I said to Berkey one day, I said, look, you know, the career you've had, who were the best players that you've ever worked with? And uh, interesting, he picked three and, and one of them was a Newcastle United player. Uh, the three inevitably, Ozzy Ardiles was in there because that was his sensational signing. And uh, but the other one was Glenn Hoddle, which again is hardly surprising. I mean, Hoddle was way ahead of his time, and um, I, I asked him about all three, and particularly about Tony Green. He said, "Hey," he said, "Tony looked horrendous in training." 
he said. His head rolled from side to side. He was dragging his feet. He was always at the... And I used to watch them train, and it was true. If they were lapping, lapping the ground, which in those days, that's how you started before you got the ball out, he was always at the back. And he always looked as if he was about to die at any time or you'd have to put him in an iron lung. But, he, but as Berkey said, just throw him a ball in his direction and he just came alive. And he was the most wonderful electric player. And Berkey said so. And Berkey said it was an absolute tragedy, not just for Tony Green, but for Newcastle United, that he only played 30-odd games for them before he was injured and his career was ruined. Um, he described Ozzy as, as a visionary and maintained that England ought to have built their, our national side round Glen Hoddle, who was a complete legend at Spurs. And for Tony Green to be grouped with Ozzy Ordiles and Glen Hoddle is a tremendous um, compliment to Tony and thoroughly deserved, by the way, because he was that good. Um, and fans of a certain age that were around in that time uh, revere Tony Green to this day, although he hardly played any games for us at all. Yeah, I spoke to Tony last year, at the beginning of lockdown. Yeah. If you yeah. search Tony Green on our podcast channel, you'll, you'll hear the podcast, the episode that we did. Fascinating to talk to him. And, you know, to, like you say, travesty that he, he got injured and it, it ruined his career when he was at his peak, essentially. Um, yeah, great player. And when you hear yourself and older supporters talk about him, it's amazing that someone who played for so little time is held so highly. And then to be in the Absol- same bracket as Darcy Ardilis is, uh, and Glenn Hoddle is, is it's, like you say, it's, it's, a, it's a big it's, accolade. Yeah, it is. It is. And he was he was that good. Um, the background with Berkey, which is interesting because there was always links to Newcastle United, you know. Berkey was, who was a... a Doer Yorkshireman, he wasn't a, you know, he was a, a, a real doer character, great, great guy, but he wasn't flip or extrovert or anything like that. And he was born in Barnsley and brought up in Barnsley, played for Barnsley Boys as a kid. And he's telling us one day, inevitably, he used to do what we all used to do, and that was bunk off school and go and watch Barnsley play because. There was no floodlights in those days, so if they played midweek, they played in the afternoon. You played on a Wednesday afternoon, you didn't play on a Wednesday night like now, so that meant you had a bunk off school. You didn't have that problem on a Saturday, but you had a bunk off school to um, to watch Bonsley. And uh, he said he used to, when he was a kid, it cost him nine pence to get in uh, to Oakwell to go in and support the team. And uh, he bunked off school this afternoon and went down to watch his hero. And who was his hero? George Robledo, who then left Barnsley and signed for Newcastle, of course, and played famously uh, in the cup-winning side. In fact, the, the side of 1952 would be Arsenal 1-0. George scored the goal. And his brother Ted played in that side as well. And, um, I mean... The background was that how they happened to come here was he, their mother, Elsie, was a Yorkshire lass who at 18 had gone over to South America to be a governess to an English mine manager, had met the dad out there, had the two boys, had three boys actually. Um, marriage didn't work out when it was all over. She came home and brought the lads with him. And uh, he was only five, Judge, when he arrived in um, in. 
Barnsley, which must have been a shock from <laughs> from uh, Chile. But uh, there you go. Um, but that's how we ended up playing for Barnsley. And um, I mean, the, the memories of of uh, Berkey <coughs> was this wonderful goal scorer. He wasn't a flair player, yeah, George Robley. He, he was a player rather in the mould of Shearer. You know, big side, strong, no real pace, knew where the goal was, ruthless finisher, no frills, um, no fancy dance stuff, but scored a pile of goals. He scored 47 in 114 uh, games for Barnsley in the old second division. And um, as I said to Berkey, well, was, he said he was great in those days. He said Ted was nowhere near as good. Uh, a good a player and Ted wouldn't have made it into the big time you know but for George signing for Newcastle and George said that he would only come to Newcastle if they signed his brother Ted as well so they signed Ted who in the main was a reserve player but did make the the, the 52 side and um, he said he was he, he ironically this afternoon when he nicked off school Barnsley were actually playing Newcastle <laughs> In the fourth, it keeps coming round, doesn't it? it? They, played, they played Newcastle in the fourth round of the cup. It was January 1946, the first FA Cup competition after the, sec the end of the Second World War, and the only time in FA Cup history that the ties were played over two legs. Can you imagine that? The ties were played over two legs. Newcastle had won 4-2 against Barnsley at St James's Park, but they then went down to Barnsley when Berkey was in the crowd and they lost 3-0 and went out on aggregate 5-4. That's so Newcastle United, isn't it? Uh, totally, isn't it? <laughs> you win 4-2 at home, you score fourth goal, you go down to Barnsley, second division side, should be cruising, you get cuffed 3-0 and, and you're out of the FA Cup. And he said, I remember standing on the terraces that day and... Uh, been mesmerised by Rob Lido, he said, in the Newcastle team that day, and he remembered it well, that lost 3-0 to Barnsley, at Barnsley, Ward Jackie, Joe Harvey, Albert Stubbins, Charlie Crowell and Bobby Corbett, they played in the cup-winning sides. Ernie Taylor's debut was that day, who was the little genius, pocket dynamo that played inside forward that was loved by Joe Harvey. Um, and he said afterwards, he said, oh, and by the way, Gibbo, just to complete the story, he says, when I went to school the next day, I got caned for nicking off because they knew I had nicked off and I'd gone down to Oakwell uh, to watch the game. And um, he was a lovely lad, was Berkey. Um, had an awful lot of time for him. And I, I often wonder what would have happened if, you know how you wonder? You wonder if Bobby Robson had only uh, followed Kevin Keegan, which was a possibility at the time, what might have become history. And if Newcastle United were to lose Joe Harvey, you wonder what would have happened if Birkenshaw being appointed manager, bearing in mind that he was at Spurs, signed, we might have signed Ozzy the player instead of Ozzy the manager, because Ozzy the player was a lot better than Ozzy the manager was. Do you think the directors at Newcastle ever wondered that? No, I don't think they, w they ever would, because it never dawns on them to be over-ambitious. It, 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 it was just right to clear out everybody. And and this guy went down, and I mean, he won the European Cup with Spurs, etc., etc. He is revered at Tottenham as one of the great managers of the past. 
and yet he could have been a great manager at Newcastle United. I mean, people often say about Joe Harvey that you know he's a fantastic uh, character, <laughs> but coaching wasn't really his no, strong no. point. So was this where Berkey came into? Totally, Berkey was was um, coach when we played in the 1974 FA Cup final. Um, he was the first team coach at the time. Joe Harvey was the sort of manager that Kevin, Kevin Keegan was. Kevin Keegan didn't coach, wasn't interested in coaching. Kevin Keegan just wanted to play five-a-sides with Terry McDermott. That's all he wanted to do. Uh, Joe Harvey wasn't a coach. But what both Harvey and, 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 um, and uh, Keegan had was the ability to man-manage. He was wonderful one-on-one with players and getting the best out of players. And they both had a wonderful eye for talent. They would spot the right players to sign. The coaching was left very much to to their coaches. So both Berkey, really the Newcastle 74 side, was totally coached by Berkey and managed by Joe Harvey. And they went well together. Uh, <coughs> and the great shame, as I say, is that Berkey... Berkey left, considering what Berkey then did. And we didn't have a manager for an awful long time that was capable of doing anything like that. We probably went all the way through to when we got Keegan. Did you see it coming, though, the success that he had at Spurs? From what you saw at his time at Newcastle, did you see it coming? You've got to be truthful and say, to a certain extent, not. I knew he was a superb coach, and I knew players um, loved being coached by him. But there's a great difference. You get a lot of people, uh, Andrew, who are very good coaches, but when they step up to be a manager, because they haven't got that ability to man-manage, to make big decisions and to spot talent. Because in those days, the managers signed players, not like now. Um, And so it was hard. I mean, uh, when I look back at the Newcastle team, like the 74 team that we're talking about, the Berkey coached, because I often like to think about it. I mean, I thought, out of that side, I always thought Frank Clark would have a great possibility as a manager, and he did at Nottingham Forest in yeah. Manchester City. I always felt Bob Moncur would make a manager, and he did at, at several clubs like Carlisle and Plymouth and Hearts up in Scotland, etc., uh, etc. Et et um, but I thought John Tudor would make a great manager, and he never went into management and I thought Supermark, my old mate, had no chance at all because he was a flamboyant cowboy, swagger, John Wayne, big cigar, champagne. Uh, and he turned out to be a very, very successful manager at Fulham. So it's interesting what you see, what you expect and mm. then how things occasionally turn out. And um, I mean, Berkey was terrific, but he he was ready-made to, to be given that step, you know, uh, but... No, we went out and got Gordon Lee, who was as much a, a, a risk as Berkey would have been. I mean, he was two divisions down with Blackburn, uh, and we didn't have any reason to think he would be any better than Berkey would have been. Um, but I guess from Berkey's point of view, it's the best thing that ever happened to him, getting the pedal of Newcastle, because he'd become one of the legendary managers at Tottenham Hotspur. Fascinating. It's always interesting to think what might have been. And we go from... One fantastic coach at Newcastle, one fantastic manager at Spurs, to a fantastic manager at Newcastle, and an interesting friendship with another manager just down the road at Sunderland. Yeah, Bob Stoko. I mean, the, the the funny thing is that they were the best of friends, and then they become rivals at two 
bitter, bitter rivals, if you like, in the eyes of fans, most certainly. Um, and the funny thing is, you know, Bob Stoko uh, was a complete black and whiter. As a young player, when he played at St James's Park, he was completely black and white. And he ended up by becoming a legend at Sunderland and had a statue raised to him at Sunderland with, after the FA Cup, famously, of 73, of course. But um, it, I always found it quite amusing because he was a complete fanatical Newcastle United fan and dedicated player. And um, Bob, Joe Harvey was his not only his best mate, and they remained best mates when um, when uh, Stoker went and managed other sides, including Sunderland. But um, they played golf together all the managerial lives. Um, Harvey, if you remember, was in the Newcastle team 51-52 when he was the skipper. And in 55, when Newcastle won the cup again, Bob had took his place in the side. Joe was was on the coaching panel at the time, but Bob had took his place in the side. And um, the the interesting, the sort of friendship they had was that in later life, when Bob was managing all over the country, significantly at Sunderland, was that Joe would always try to help Bob. Uh, and Vicky Verkey and uh, that's what happened with this deal and, and, and the deal was involved Keith Dyson who was one of the young lads in the, in the Newcastle United squad that won the European First Cup in 69 he, he dipped in and out the side he was on the bench a lot of the time but he played in games as well and he got into the side regularly the next couple of years when we were playing in the First Cup again and I talked to Dyker and this transfer was absolutely unique. It could never happen these days, the way Dyker left Newcastle United. It was absolutely ludicrous. Um, it, it was He left Newcastle in October of the first season that uh, Supermac was at Newcastle. Uh, obviously one of the reasons they could get rid of Keith Dyson because they'd got Supermac who played in Keith Dyson's position. Um, Dyke had scored 20 goals, 26 goals for us in 92 uh, appearances. Uh, he was a strong, one-paced but strong, powerful striker. Um, but I mean, transfers now, nowadays you get your knee-deep in agents, you've got private planes, you've got players on mobiles going on to social media to announce this, that and the other. In this day, this was Keith Dyson told me the story in detail. I was doubled up laughing about his transfer and how he went. He said he, he got a day off. Newcastle had been given a day off and um, he was working in the garden at home and all of a sudden car pulls up outside and it's Joe Richardson who was one of the trainers, as they were called in those days. And uh, he come in, he said, um, Dyke, he said, uh, the gaffer wants to talk to you. You've got to come down the ground and talk to the gaffer. And, and Dyke said, well, it's me to help. What's he, what's he want to talk to me about? And uh, Joe said, I've got no idea. He'll tell you when you're there. You've got to come down to the ground. Uh, so Keith just went off down to St. James's Park in to see the gaffer, just in his ordinary gear. He thought, an hour meeting with the boss, and I'm back home. 
Never got back home at all that day. Never got back home at all. When he went down there, Joe was waiting with a man called Fenton Braithwaite, who was one of the directors. And Joe said to Dyke, uh, um, look, get in the car with us. We're going somewhere. I'll, tell, I'll let you know what it's all about. And Keith said, well, where are we going? He said, never, never you mind where you're going. Just get in the back seat of the car. And he was a bit of a sergeant major, was Joe. So as Keith said, you just did what you were told. <laughs> so he's sitting in the back seat of the car with Fenton Braithwaite in the front and Joe, and he's got no idea where he's going. No, and he's actually going to be sold. As it turns out, he was going to be sold. Um, but Joe didn't tell him he was going to be sold, and he wouldn't tell him for some reason where they were going either. I think he wanted to catch him unawares when he started talking at the other end and not be able to think a lot about it and probably go off the idea before the idea had started. So the drive, they're actually driving from Tyneside to Blackpool as it happens, and he's sitting in the back of the car, his mind's a whirl. He doesn't know where he's going or why he's going. And they suddenly pull up on this housing estate that turns out to be in Blackpool, outside of this house, and who opens the front door but Bob Stoker, who at that time was manager of Blackpool. So Bob Stoker opens the door uh, and says, right, in you, in you come. So they went in, had a quick chat, and then... Stoker says, we've got to go down uh, to the ground. So they go, and he's bemused still. He goes down to the ground, they get out, they stick Diker in one room with Bob Stoker, Harvey and Braithwaite walk to the other end of the corridor and go in another room with Tony Green, and the deal is that is going to be the make-weight in the Tony Green deal. Uh, Stoko's friendship with Harvey was such that Don Revy had turned up at his house, uh, at Stoko's house, to try to sign Tony Green, and Stoko hated Don Revy. Leeds United FA Cup final, etc. Hated and loved Joe, so he never told Tony Green that he could have gone to Leeds, who were the super duper team of the time. But he chucked up Re Revy and he got on the phone to Joe and said, hey, listen, I've got this player, he's so good that Don Revy's turned up in my house to sign him, but I don't want him to go to Revy, you take him. Now that's friendship, isn't it? And that is, that, that is friendship. And as he said, so Dyke is sitting in the room with, with uh, Bob Stoker, who's very passionate and wanting to put, and he said, my mind's just whirring. He said, I left the house to go down to St. James's Park to, to sort of the boss perhaps saying, look, you'll be playing on Saturday out on the wing instead of centre, etc., etc." He said, and all of a sudden, I'm sitting in somebody's office and I'm going to get transferred. He said, I hadn't, there wasn't, he didn't have an agent in those days. And the pressure was put on him. That at one stage, Bob Stoker says to him, if you don't sign, by the way, for me, the Tony Green deal will be off and you'll have to sit three hours on the way home in a car with Joe Harvey. You haven't spoiled Joe Harvey's deal. So uh, <laughs> call that pressure, eh? So he's, sit, he's, sit, he's sitting That's there. quite a threat. It, it's his, isn't it? <laughs> so he says, I'm sitting there. Can you also believe that his mum and dad, who didn't know where he'd gone, by the way, and he's sitting in Blackpool, his mum and dad weren't on the phone 
in those days hadn't a phone, so he was unable to tell his mum and dad that he was going to get transferred to Blackpool and had been hijacked in a car by Joe Harvey and he couldn't phone home because they didn't have a phone. So he asked if he could make a phone call and he tried to phone, he told us this story, it's ridiculous, he tried to phone a woman called Mrs Haddock who was the local midwife that actually had delivered Keith when Keith was born, and who tried to phone her to say, will you nip up and have a word with me mum and dad to tell them where I am and what's happening? She wasn't in, so so there was no reply to that phone. So he then tried to phone John McNamee and Ben Arentoft, who had both played with him in the Fairs Cup side, because they'd both left Newcastle by this time, to sign for other clubs and he thought they might be able to give him some sort of advice. Again, he got through, he didn't get through to them at all. So at the end of the day, he's actually put up in a hotel overnight. His mum and dad didn't know he wasn't coming home. He's, he's in a hotel in Blackpool overnight. He's unable to get in touch with, with his mum and dad. He decides a better sign under all sorts of pressure, accepts the deal offered by by Stoko, the next day he signs f- for Blackpool, so he's now going to play in Blackpool. He hadn't a toothbrush or anything with him when he went to stay overnight. No pyjamas, no toothbrush, no nothing, because he didn't know he was going to stay overnight. He eventually gets home after midday the following day, having been driven back by Joe Harvey, went to his house and thought, oh, my mum and dad's going to be a bit like anxious and all that, so he went in and said, I'm that sorry I haven't been touched, but I've actually signed for Blackpool, he says. And mum and dad says, oh, I know, son. I read it in the journal this morning. (laughs) 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 Can you believe that... uh, And, I mean, the wonderful thing was that uh, Dyke was going to play at Blackpool with Alan Suddick, that used to be a superstar kid at Newcastle and was... Dyker's hero when Dyker was on the terraces in Newcastle watching Newcastle play. The guy, the guy he loved was Alan Suddick, who was a Blackpool and he was going to play with him. And he ended up having a wonderful career at Blackpool. Uh, he won the Anglo-Italian Cup, as Newcastle did, uh, with Blackpool and had a very, very successful career. He's back now living in the North East and uh, I see him quite regularly at First Cup reunion uh, days, uh, etc., but um, can you imagine these days a kid being hijacked by his manager, not being told where he's going, told he better sign for this club because you'll have to face the wrath of Joe Harvey if you don't. And your mum and dad are not on yeah. the phone, so you can't tell them. I imagine the PFA would have something to say about that if it happened today. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's quite ludicrous, isn't it? You know, yeah, I mean, it's it, absolutely crackers. It, it's absolutely incredible. And it was so it was a deal that actually worked out for both of us because although Tony Green only played about 30 games for us, he was a sensation yeah. and he's a legend to these days. And Dyker had a very, very good career at Blackpool. So as it happened, it worked out. Um, you know, for but those days the way we the way we signed people and the way we went about things, I mean I, I always remember John Tudor coming to Newcastle. Um after Dyker, he then become the the partner of um Supermac, of course, in the seventy four Cup final. And um, I wrote I wrote the preface for his autobiography, which was called King for a Day, because King John 
the Tudor king, etc., etc. And um, he became a very, very close friend of mine and was very underrated because Supermax always said he's the best partner he had. And he, he had Alan Gowling at Newcastle in 76 when they went to the League Cup final. Um, <coughs> he had Frank Stapleton at Arsenal, who was very, very successful with him in a series <laughs> of partners with England. But he always said John Tudor was the best. And um, when John Tudor, it's it's so different now. When John Tudor signed for Newcastle up here, he stayed. He was in book in the county hotel, and I went and had a meal with him in the county hotel the night he he signed for us. And he wrote in the book after he said we we stayed pals for the rest of the rest of time. And John had a very tough time when he first come here because he wasn't accepted to start with because he signed without Supermark here on his own, playing up front on his own as a target man and he struggled a bit and he struggled with the crowd but once Supermark come and they went in a harness as a twosome they were absolutely magnificent and I always remember the World Cup final of finals of 1974 England didn't make the finals then and Scotland did that in itself is amazing isn't mm. it? Scotland were in the World Cup finals and, and England weren't and and I was going out to cover I covered all the World Cup finals of those times and I was going out and I took John Tudor who was Newcastle's centre forward to, at the time and I took John Tudor with me to be the expert analysis at, at the World Cup final. How did you get that to on expenses? I, I know, it's diff a different day. How did I get to the world, all the World Cups? I mean, I went to the World Cup in Japan and the Olympic Games in Australia. How did he get those? Uh, when you look at the, the way life is these days. And John went and, and we lived for about a month out in Germany, going to wherever Scotland went to play. We went and covered, covered the games and... Um, he called it one of the great experiences of his life because he said it opened his eyes to watch how close up, how um, international sides trained, because he wasn't an international player himself, yeah. trained and played, etc., uh, etc. Et but that was a, a rare experience with John. And, um, you know, totally different days then to what we, we have now. Well, it's interesting because the next story plays into maybe a bit of a how things have changed in the journalism world. But just before we kick on with that, just remember to please like and subscribe to the podcast from whichever platform you get us through. All you've got to do if you're on Apple or Spotify, just find our podcast page, hit subscribe. It's totally free to do so, and it just means every time that we upload an episode, you'll get a little notification to say it's there. You can pop it on your phone, listen to it, and enjoy the rest of your day with us ringing in your ears. On to the next little story then, John and um, <laughs> I don't even know how to approach this one. It's just, it's just hilarious. I mean, this is Lord and Robert getting a little bit angry at someone that was written in yeah. a newspaper. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, dear old Bobby Robson, being the man innocently stirring the pot, uh, the cauldron. You, you say innocently? Do you think he knew what he was doing? No, I think <laughs> I think he actually doesn't. I think he he didn't he didn't know who who people were what the names were he got all the names mixed up and, and i mean he, he he bobby was as warm as a summer's day i mean he, he he's one of the great great characters and was a dear friend of mine from way back long before he got the newcastle job he used to come up the northeast and do talk-ins 
uh, when he was manager of Ipswich before he was manager of England uh, and do talkings and then go back to, to Ipswich. Can you imagine that? Crazy. One day, these days, manager, high-profile managers like that come all the way. Brian Clough did it when he was manager of Derby in Nottingham, come all the way up here, did a show. He wants, Brian Clough once come from Derby up picked me up in Newcastle and, and we went to sea houses and did a gig in sea houses and then drove back through the night to Derby. I mean, it, it was amazing what managers did in those days, but um, it, this involved Lauren Robert, who was um, one of those players, a lot of fans will, will remember, and he's one of those players that was either wonderful, sensational, or was you tear your hair out because he, he did everything off the cuff and sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't now this day at the end of a game we uh, we file down in the press room and we're all in the press room you know getting ready for uh, Bobby coming out and all of a sudden the door bursts open and Lauren Robert still in his kit completely in his kit with sweat rolling off him comes storming in with his eyes bulging out and it was obvious he'd just come straight up the tunnel instead of turning right into the dressing room, turned left and come up, up into the press room. And he made a beeline for a colleague of mine who was in the press room and had him pinned up against the wall. And he was obviously going to uh, plonk him one. Luckily for, for Robert, and even more luckily for the journal that he had up against the wall, a couple of players had seen Robert take this turn, thought, whoops, I know what Lauren's going to do. And they had chased him in, so they dragged him off this uh, hack and got him in, away into the dressing room. Now, as you can imagine, that caused something of a buzz uh, in amongst the press lads. And into this quite innocently walks Bobby Robson ready to take his press conference said, who had no idea what had happened of course but Hacks on going to miss the chance of a good story and said excuse me Bobby you do know that one of your star players has just rushed into this room and had one of the journalists up against the wall with his fist poised like the trigger of a gun what do you make of all that like he said, uh, Lauren Robert, um, why, who was he going to hit like? And the, the, the press man asked him the question, told him. And he said, no, no, he said, um, it's a case of mistaken identity, he said. As if it mattered, of course. It's a case of mistaken identity, he said. Uh, uh, Lauren didn't mean to hit him. He said uh, he meant to hit John Gibson, you see. So I'm sitting in the, in the back here and I went, What? What what's all this about? You see, and he's as innocent. And, uh, he said, he's, Bobby said, hey, let me explain. He said, uh, Gibbo wrote something in the Chronicle last night. He said, I read it actually. He said, and he was given the pros and cons of uh, Lauren Robert's career, he's saying what he does that's brilliant and unlocks the door, but equally what he does that's absolutely frustrating. And um, so one of the journalists says to Bobby, well. Uh, so he would take objection to this, did he? He said, he, well, probably he did. He's, and he said, but I thought it was a very balanced piece. He said, I've had this out with Robert myself about what he doesn't do uh, at times. He said, but obviously he may, he'd seen this article and he, he wanted to smack Gibble, but he got the wrong guy because the guy he got had, had silver hair like mine, you see. So the next day, 
and actually the headlines. In, in, in the national newspapers, it said, uh, United Star aims to smack the wrong journalist, says Bobby Robson. The, in the name, me, is the journalist that, that, that was going to get smacked. Now, I, <laughs> I was absolutely flabbergasted. I had written this piece, but I thought it was balanced. But then, by the Monday it comes, people have got the Rob and said, hey, you know, you, hit, you were going to hit the wrong bloke. And Rob said, no, I wasn't. That's the bloke I meant to hit, and I was going to hit him because he said that I was a disgrace to the shirt and I should never be allowed to wear the shirt again, and that's not criticism, that is <laughs> insulting. And he ref- they tried to set up a peacemaking picture of him and the hack shaking hands and Robert wouldn't do it, etc., etc. But innocently, uh, Bobby had caused all this absolute chaos, Um and then afterwards, when I talked about to him about it, he said, uh, ah, don't worry about it, Gibbo. He said, it doesn't really matter. There was no harm done. He didn't smile. And he said, oh, by the way, you're absolutely right what you said about Robert. He said, it's the greatest challenge I've ever had as a manager since I had Romero, which is the, the superstar Brazilian who he had when he was Barcelona. He said, he said, I fight him every day to get him to do the right things. And he says, by the time I knock him into shape, I'll be 126 years old, he says, with Rob, with Lauren Robert. But some of the things he said like that was absolutely marvellous with uh, with Bobby. He was so lovable. I remember him talking just one day in passing, we were discussing Gary Speed and, and what is good about Gary Speed, who he said, vastly underrated, wonderful player, etc., etc. Um, and he said to me, you know what, Gibbo, he said, we couldn't replace Gary Speed. He says, where would you get an experienced player like him with a left foot and a head? <laughs> and we said, well, has he not got two feet? In the, but he meant his left foot is, a, is, is his magic foot and he's terrific in the air. But he said, it's very difficult these days to get a player with a left foot and a head, you know. <laughs> Can you imagine? And that was Bobby. And he actually was completely oblivious to the fact that he'd said something. And I always remember one final story on Bobby. He's standing uh, at Newcastle's training ground and this player, and I'm talking to him at the front door of the training ground, and this player arrives uh, late. Bobby had just joined the club, and this player arrives for training late, and he's, he's rushing up the door, and he, he says, uh, the player says, I'm sorry, boss, I'm sorry, boss. And and Bobby looked at him and said, right, you're fine. And as the player went back, he said to me, who was that, by the way? <laughs> it was Nikos Dabidas. And he said, and by the way, he said, Gibbo, who was that like? He said, right, you're fine, you, right, you're fine. Who was that, by the way, Gibbo? <laughs> he, he didn't know. <laughs> he, was, he was one of the, but by the way, what a manager. Oh, totally. What, what, what a manager. Yeah. And I mean, uh, Robert could have been one of the great players. He was often compared to Ginola because A, he was French, and B, he, On the wing and... And, and Paris Saint-Germain mm. both come was from Paris Saint-Germain. He was actually born in the island of Reunion in the Indian Ocean, which is about 8,000 miles from Europe. From uh, But it was a French colony, uh, and he played for France. And, of course, his son, Thomas, uh, came over very recently and uh, played for Adrian in Scotland. 
And um, Thomas was born in Paris uh, just before Lohan Robert come and played for Newcastle. So he, to a great extent, he was brought up in Newcastle for the five years that Robert was here. But he was one of the talents like Hatton Ben Arthur as well. You know, when you think what they may have been, when yeah. you saw the glimpses of them on a wonderful day, we'll talk about how we desperately want players who are different. And that is the joy of Alan San Maximum. He does things that no other players can do. Other players are predictable. He is unpredictable. And that was Ginola, who was a class above, um, both Robert and Adam Ben Arthur. But you saw in those two the unpredictability. And that's why people like Bobby Robson persevered so much with these because they were worth persevering with because of the way they were on a good day. Mm, 100%. Uh, for me, growing up, Robert was, you just loved to watch him, that goal against Fulham, the double against Spurs, there's so many. Oh. But I think at the same time, like you say, you can talk about great goals, but how often did did he do that? How often did he deliver? Correct. One yeah. of those arguments, which I'm, I'm sure will be debated long, uh, well, for many yeah. years to come. On to another Frenchman then, to wrap up the podcast, and it is, <laughs> it's Olivier Bernard, and just before we get into the story, um, I would really like to ask him all about um, that time Laurent Robert somehow managed to uh, whack a ball into his face and he, he knocked the flower, didn't he? <laughs> yeah, yes, absolutely. He was a real bubbly, lovely, lovely character, was uh, Olivier Bernard. He, he was signed for Newcastle by my old mate Paul Montgomery, who was the nightclub boss uh, where we used to uh, participate in a few goggles. Just to be Eden. social. Aye, and he, he, he signed Ollie Bernard for Newcastle in the uh, Bobby Robson days. And uh, a chop, a potentially chop, chop player um, who got bogged down with injuries. He'd become a big pal of mine after that. And Glenn McCrory, the boxer, who's a great pal of mine, we used to have barbecues at Glenn's house just a couple of years back. And Ollie was always there at the Barbies and reminiscing about the stories. And he was telling me the story about when he was growing up in Paris. Um, and he said, my hero was Chris Waddle. Played for Newcastle, of course. Waddle Beardsley Gascon. And I said, wait a minute. How on earth a little kid in Paris and his heroes at Big Geordie? How on earth did that come about? He said, well, what you've got to remember, Gibbo, first and foremost, is that Chris Waddle become an absolute superstar at Marseille in France and played in a Marseille side that was so good it got to the European Cup final, played in the final, lost the final, but got to the final, played in the final. He said and, uh, Waddle was revered and is to this day. If you go to Marseille, and mention Chris Waddle's name, you know, and drinks all night because he is adored. And he says, what you've got to remember, in those days, he said, I was not a left-back, which is where he made his name. He was a centre-forward. And when he was capped by France, Ollie, Ollie Bernard, at under-16, under-17 level, he was capped as a centre-forward. So he was a front player. And he says, I used to watch... Waddle playing on television for Marseille. He said, and I used to try to run like him. 
have the great the same as kids do that are impressionable. I said he used to try to run like a waddler. He used to run as if he had a sack of coal on his back. But that's when he was a kid. Once he become from the ugly duckling, he become the beautiful swan, and he was a, a wonderfully balanced player. He said, and uh, he said he was my hero. He said, and uh, he's still a hero in Marseille, he said, and you've got to earn your right to be here in Marseille. He said, can you remember what had it? Habib Bey, the fullback, the, the French fullback, he said when he played for Marseille and Marseille got beat, the fans went and ransacked his flipping house because they, they are passionate to the point of being ludicrous in Marseille. Um, but they took to Waddle. He said, I also like Ginola as a player because Ginola was a Paris Saint-Germain. And he was flamboyant, but he said, my real hero was Chris Waddle. And it's a small old world that he ended up coming to play for Newcastle United. And now uh, Ollie's living on Tyneside the whole time. And his great memories and his great affection is Newcastle United. And he was a, a lovely little bubbly lad that could have had a great career. He signed for Newcastle a second time, but by the time he came back, he was well knackered with injuries and uh, he was never the same player again. But uh, a, a lot of memories from him and uh, a lot of these fun stories just come about through reminiscing, mm. reminiscing over a period of time and in fascinating and intriguing. It's just amazing how like, you say uh, the, how small the world is with all these ah, little you keep coming back twists to of fate, United, isn't it? You? Yeah, I mean, like you know, Birkenshaw and all the little twists of fate to Aussie and the new. It's just, it's just bizarre. But it's a pleasure to to hear some some kind of fresh stories as well, because a lot yeah. of these tales I don't think anyone really would have heard. So no, I'm sure um, not. Uh, but I'm hoping they're interesting because oh, I find them absolutely fascinating. And you know, and and uh, Berkey, I mean, Ollie is a kid. His hero's Waddle, who's a Geordie, and Berkey is a kid, his hero's George Robledo, who goes and wins the cup for Newcastle United later on. It's <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's amazing, it? isn't it? But that has been the latest episode of Gibbo's Corner, United Behind the Headlines. And if you enjoyed this episode, do search Gibbo's Corner on your podcast provider, where you've done lots and lots and lots of episodes. Um, each one is a belter, if we do say so ourselves. And yeah, thank you once again for tuning in. Cheers. God bless. Thank you.